0: As we begin this new series, as we begin this message, I want you to, in your mind, go into the future. I actually want you to go to uh, imagining yourself on your deathbed, uh, imagining yourself at the end of your life, whether you anticipate that being five years from now or 50 years or more from now, and imagine being on your deathbed and looking backwards, thinking of the life that, that you've lived. And on the one hand, you're there and you look back on your life and you, you can't help but think, man, there's just been so much wasted time in my life. And you look back and you think of a lot of the pain in your life. And in that moment, you know, of clear thinking and now the benefit of retrospective learning, you say, man, a lot of that pain that I experienced was self-inflicted. And it was the fruit of some of the foolish things that I did. Or on the other hand, imagine uh, thinking of your deathbed and and looking back at your life and saying, you know, I've seen ups and I've seen downs, or some of your own poets have said, I've seen fire and I've seen rain, right? (laughs) All all the different things that life can bring. But through all of that, I've been blessed. Through all of that, I've seen a prosperity that has come from the inside out, which one of those two outcomes do you want? I think it's pretty unanimous. We're saying the second one, please. I would like, I would like that. Well, what if I told you that I could guarantee that outcome for you? Well, what if I told you that, hey, if you listen to this message today and you do what it says, that will be the end for you. And frankly, there are no what ifs about it. That is what I'm telling you this morning. If you listen to what we're going to talk about this morning and you take it to heart and you do what it says, you will end your life and look back and say, I was blessed. And that's not because I'm so smart or I'm so wise. And it's definitely not because this is going to be the most eloquent sermon you've ever heard. I'm saying that because that's exactly what God is going to say to you through his word this morning. So let's look at it together. Open up your Bible to Psalm 1 this morning. Uh, we're going to take a, a little break. We're end Ecclesiastes. We'll be starting something new in the fall, but we're going to take, Lord willing, these next seven weeks and look at seven different psalms together. And we're going to start this week with Psalm 1 and, Lord willing, next week look at Psalm 2, which hopefully by the end you'll see, I think those two psalms actually intentionally go together. Uh, but we will start here with Psalm 1, and hopefully you will see clearly what I was trying to convey to you about how this will affect the outcome of your life. Psalm 1 says, "'Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel "'of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, "'nor sits in the seat of scoffers, "'but his delight is in the law of the Lord, "'and on his law he meditates day and night.'" will perish. And so as we look at this psalm, it's very clear. It's pointing us there are two different roads. There are two different ways you can go and they lead to two very different destinations. And you have a choice. It's either this or it's that. And our world struggles with having to make those choices. Our world struggles with just about anything that's binary these days. But here we see in the scripture, right? You've got to Choice, and it's one or the other, and you see that all throughout the Bible. If we took one step over to Proverbs, we would see it's usually not the righteous and the wicked all the time; it's often the wise versus the fool, and you're one or the other. Or even Jesus speaks of the judgment at the end with the sheep and the goats, and we'll see even more from Jesus talking about two ways, two roads that lead to two places. But first, verses one and two are really going to describe what do those roads look like. And then uh, we're going to see then what are the destinations that they lead to. So let's start with those first two verses and let's consider these two different roads. And it starts by showing us, well, it uses this word blessed or blessed, right? And in one translation, way you could translate that word is happy, And that's a good translation, but really, blessed tries to give you, it's a really, it's a deep sense of that. It is a deep sense of inner well-being that affects your whole life. It's a flourishing that flows from your heart into all of your life. Blessed is the man, and then it's going to show us basically, blessed is the man who avoids this, who avoids these things, uh, but blessed is the man who, who seeks these things, And we're going to say, basically, blessed is the man who avoids these ways of the world and blessed is the man who seeks the way of the Lord. Basically, what you're going to see today in this passage is the outcome of your life and the outlook that you will have on your deathbed will be determined by whether you listen to the world or whether you listen to God's word. That's the choice. Who are you going to listen to? Because that is going to determine The destination. So, point number one this morning, go ahead and put it down this way replace the pull of the world with a love for God's instruction. Replace the pull of the world with a love for God's instruction. We're going to have to put away something and put on something else. Let's look at the first part. What are we supposed to put away? And it says there, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And you'll notice there, there is a progression, especially in those first words. It starts with walking. And next thing you know, you are standing. And finally, you are sitting, right? Progressively getting more and more stationary and comfortable in the ways of the world. And this doesn't stand out as much in the English, a little more in the Hebrew, but those last words wicked, sinners, scoffers. Those even get progressively worse. And maybe you catch some sense of that in the English with ending with scoffers, right? These are people that are not only doing the wrong things themselves, they are mocking what is right and what is good. And you see a sense there, that is how the world operates. That's how the world pulls people in. First thing you know, you're walking and kind of listening Next thing you know, you're standing around and hanging out. And then you've taken a seat and you're joining in all of it. And that's what the world wants to do. Start by just listening to it, then accept a little more of it. And now you're embracing the world's ideas and mocking everything else. There's a gravitational pull to the ways of the world. Are you fishermen in here who you go out uh, to get those salmon, right? What's unique about the salmon? Well, they, they end by swimming Upstream, right? They're going against the flow because the flow of the world, well, that's going to pull you somewhere else. And if you're not going against the grain, you're going to get pulled from walking to standing to sitting. Think of this verse from Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what we need to do because there's that pressure of being conformed. And that word even has that idea of uh, the world has a mold and it is trying to push you into its mold. If you've ever made something, you know, out of plaster or, or even you've gone to the beach and you, you've made a sandcastle with one of those buckets, right? It's a mold. And that's what the world does. The world says, this is what we want you to think like. This is what we want you to act like. This is what we want you to feel. And if you don't resist, it's just going to squeeze you into that mold. And God's saying, don't, don't do that. In Romans, Psalm 1 saying, no, no, avoid those ways. Think differently. So I want you to Think this morning, what are the ways, especially if you just uh, go with the flow that the world is seeking to press you into its mold? What are the ways that the world is trying to get you to prioritize and seek after the things that it wants you to seek after? And we know what some of those things are. First John 2 warns us about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes the pride of life, what are the influences pushing you that way? And that's where, that's always been the way it's worked. But there are some ways that are different now. I mean, whoever wrote this, and I think the best suggestion, even though it doesn't say it, is that David wrote Psalm 1 and 2. Well, King David couldn't just, you know, turn on his television or pull out his phone and see what was going on on social media. There is this whole media uh, that we have to deal with now, in many different ways and forms, that is seeking to influence your life, influence your thinking, right? What are you listening to? What are you seeking out? Where is that? Where is the current of that taking you? And that's not all bad. I mean, there's some good things like you have more access to Bible teaching than any generation that's ever lived in the history of the world. But you also have more access to a lot of other junk than any other generation in the history. Of the world. How is that influencing your life? Do you need to look at some things and say, hey, this thing that I'm consuming, these people that I'm allowing to be the influencers in my life, are they pulling me towards Jesus or are they just making me want a better life, a bigger house, and a, a better this, right? Well, whatever that may be. No, we need to evaluate what those influences are. But also, you, you need to think through even your personal relationships. 1 Corinthians 15, says, do not be deceived. Whenever scripture says that, that's like, well, perk up because there's a lie that I'm going to be tempted to believe. It's going to spot the lie. It's going to show me the lie. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And you think, oh man, well, that'd be a great message out there for our student ministry right now to hear or our college students. And it is. Guess what? It's a great message for you grown-ups, too to think through who are the people that I'm hanging out with? Who are the personal relationships that I am allowing to shape my life? There are going to be people in your life that openly entice you to sin. And you, by continuing just to hang out with them, that's going to pull you in a bad direction. There's going to be some people even that share your values and share your politics, which, hey, those are good things, but if they don't share your faith, Where's that going to lead? And certainly I'm not trying to suggest, hey, let's just withdraw and become this holy huddle, right? That's not what scripture calls us to, but it does call us, hey, who, who are your closest people? Who are you really running through life with? Who are you partnering with? Hey, let them be people that influence you towards godliness. Don't walk in the way, the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of God. But again, our passage doesn't just say, hey, don't do these things. It shows us what to replace it with. Verse two begins with the word, but here's something else. Here's a contrast. Here's what you need to listen to. But his delight, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And it's interesting there that it doesn't start with what the blessed man does does, although it does get there, it actually starts with what the blessed man feels in his heart towards something. It starts with he delights, he loves, he enjoys, he craves something. He craves the law of the Lord. And you all know, hey, when you delight in something, when you enjoy something, when you crave something, it leads you to certain actions. Those of you out there that delight in gardening, you know what? That leads to certain actions. You're gonna go out and buy the gardening tools or, or the books that will teach you this. And you're sub- gonna subscribe to the how to plant your own garden podcasts and YouTube channels because you delight in it. And those of you that don't delight in that or feel if I touch anything green, it will perish, right? You are not gonna go do those things because you don't delight in it. What you delight in will affect your actions. And he's saying, hey, I delight in this. I love this. And what does he delight in? He delights in the law of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word there for law is Torah, which often is used to refer to the first five books of the Bible. Uh, But If you you have the English Standard Version, it'll even put a footnote in there. The most literal translation of the word Torah is instruction. That's that's the idea. And in some ways, that should apply to all of Scripture, all that God teaches. And and the blessed man says, I want that. I delight in that. The, The blessed man says, man, the way of the world, it's got nothing. What does God think? How does God feel? And what does God say? Would you please give me more of that? Pump that into my veins, please. I crave it. I need it. I delight in it. That's what the blessed man wants. Give me the instruction of God. That is the good stuff. And and there's two things that I want to show you. I mean, this is the 11 o'clock crowd. You've had some time to wake up. You guys are with me. I can feel you guys are with me. So I'm going to be ambitious here and I'm going to try to kill two birds with one stone. The main thing I want to do in this next part is to show you, hey, God's instruction is worth delighting in, right? It is worth delighting in. And I also want to show you that's true of all of scripture, but also that is specifically true of the first five books of the Bible as well. The law, the Torah, as it is often known. And even it's interesting, we're starting the book of Psalms. We're we're, a brief study on some selected Psalms, but we're starting with the first one. And how the Hebrews arranged what we refer to as the Old Testament was actually different than how it is in our Bibles. All the same material, nothing taken away, nothing added to it. Same material, just arranged differently. And you even hear Jesus talk about this when he talks about things like the law and the prophets, or sometimes it's the law and the prophets and the writings. And because the Psalms is actually the first book of that third part, the writings, sometimes you'll even see the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. It's kind of a stand-in for all of the books of the writings. And it's interesting, and they would call them, the the Torah was the law, right? And then you had the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, right? Well, the first Verses here of the writings are talking about, I delight in the law, I delight in the Torah. Now, let's be honest together. What is, even amongst Christians in modern America, the popular opinion of the first five books of the Bible? It's, it's the boring part, right? It's the, you're reading through the Bible. Well, hey, if you can make it through the first five books It's all downhill from there, right? And what I want to show you is that is an offensive way to talk about the law of the Lord, that we should say, oh, the first five books, I delight in those. How can I get more of those? And everything I want to show you is true of all of scripture, but I want to show you, again, let's be ambitious this morning, right? It's I want to show you it's true of the first five books, and then it's true of the prophets, it's true of the writings, it's true of the gospels, and the rest of the New Testament. But let me just show you some of these things from the first five books of the Bible. So are you ready? You with me? You guys ready to go? Three reasons why you should delight in the law, and I'll show you all of them from the Torah. And the first one is it shows us who God is. It shows us who God is. Delight in the instruction of God, because it will show you who God really is. So let's think through the first five books of the Bible. Genesis. Well, right there in the very beginning, it shows us he's the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he saw everything he made and he said it was what? Good. He's a good, amazing creator. We also see in the early chapters of Genesis, he is a judge. He's the judge. Sin comes in Genesis 3 and there are consequences. There is judgment. There is a curse. And even a few chapters later, the whole world, except for eight people, is wiped out through the flood as an act of God's justice. But then we see, even in the wake of that, that he is a God who makes and he is the God who keeps promises. Even as Noah gets off the ark, God puts the rainbow, the real reason for the rainbow. This is a sign of my covenant with you, Noah, my promise to you. Hey, Abraham, you're going to have a son. I'm making that promise to you. And even when it seems like all hope is lost, even when, as the Bible says, Sarah was herself as good as dead. Ladies, how would you like that said of you? Probably (laughs) not so much. But when Sarah was as good as dead, she conceived and bore a child, right? God keeps his promises. And then we get to the book of Exodus and see God is a deliverer. God sees his people in suffering. And as you sang earlier, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he delivers his people. And in Exodus, we learn the name of the Lord as Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And God gives his name, I am who I am. And none of us can say that. God can say, I exist because I exist. And I depend on nobody. I I need nothing from anybody because I am who I am. That's actually why God can keep his promises. Because when he says something, he can guarantee it because he is who he is. Or then in chapter 34 is He passes before Moses, just listen to these words, just two verses, Exodus 34, six and seven. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. And even that's the covenant name that is tied to that idea of I am who I am. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Just two verses there, but think of all the theology, all that that told you about God. In the book of Leviticus, we see that God is holy, right? The clear theme of the book. In the book of Numbers, we see God is a God that is worthy of our trust and our trust faith. And Numbers, again, you've probably heard me say this before, I think, is the most poorly named book in the Bible. It sounds like you're opening up an Excel spreadsheet and like, ooh, this sounds exciting, right? Well, no, the the whole point of the Numbers is there is a whole army that dies without ever fighting a battle, except for two of them. And they all die because they lacked faith in God. Because when the moment to go fight and conquer came, they said, we can't And it wasn't so much that they said we can't do it. What they were really saying is God can't do it, right? And that's an offense to a God who is worthy of our trust and our faith. Deuteronomy teaches us that there is no one like our God. What God is there like our God? What God is there who has done the kinds of things that our God has done? No one. He is unique. There's no one like him. And then that shows us what our response should be. The law of the Lord shows us what God is like. But not only that, the second reason we should delight in the law of the Lord is it points us toward the Savior. It points us toward the Savior. You don't even get out of Genesis 3 where there's the fall and the curse without the hope of the gospel. It's right there, right? Right right in the middle of, hey, there's going to be pain in childbirth and men, by the sweat of your brow, you will uh, make your bread, right? Right in the middle of all that, hey, woman, from your seed, there. Someone's gonna come who will crush the head of the serpent. He will bruise your heel. You will bruise his head. We see the hope of the gospel, the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How are you, a bunch of Gentiles in Idaho, about as far away from the promised land as you could possibly be on planet earth, how are you blessed through Abraham? Well, who came through Abraham? The Messiah. Jesus Christ. And because of that, you're here this morning and you are blessed as a part of his people. Exodus, I mean, amongst other things, gives us the picture of the Passover, the time when Jesus Christ actually will be crucified. Because of him, God passes over us in judgment. The book of Leviticus shows us the sacrifices, teaches us about atonement, which ultimately is a picture of Christ. Numbers, We see what Jesus even refers to, just as the serpent was raised up, so also must the son of man be lifted up. Deuteronomy points us towards a prophet who will be raised up, a prophet who will come. That's ultimately a reference to the Messiah and even shows us, hey, you're not gonna be able to do these things without a new heart. You need your hearts to be circumcised. And ultimately that points us towards the only one who can give us that new heart. The only one that can circumcise our hearts. So often through progressive revelation, we think about the Savior from the New Testament or passages that explicitly point to Jesus Christ. And we have all that. All of the scripture points us toward the Savior, but it's right there in the first five books too, pointing us towards the Messiah. And then the third thing is it teaches us how to live. We delight in God's law because it teaches us how to live. And there's some order to this, right? Because we cannot live that way without that savior, right? Those things go together. You try to live that way, Deuteronomy even warns you, you can't because you don't have the heart to. You, you need this new heart that will come from this savior. But even the theologians refer to sometimes the third use of the law, which is, hey, for those that are regenerate, for those that are, have a new heart, the law is meant to be a guide to show us how to live. And how to live, as Psalm 1 puts it, the blessed life. Uh, That's what the law will teach us to do. And if you think of, well, the first five books, those are all about like rituals and ceremonies. And don't we like not even have to do that stuff anymore, right? That's what we think. When if that's what you think, the point of the first five books of the Bible is, you have missed the forest for the trees, my friends. Think of Hebrews chapter 11. If you're not familiar with that chapter, sometimes Christians call it the hall of faith because it gives us all these amazing examples of faith. And because of the faith that they had in their heart, the amazing things that they did. Guess where just about all of those examples in Hebrews 11 come from? The first five books of the Bible. And even it's when he starts getting out of the first five books of the Bible that he's like, guys, I'm out of time. Like I could keep going on with this. But I mean, look at, Abel, and Enoch, and Noah, and Abraham, and Sarah, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, right? Look at all these examples of faith. If you think the point of the first five books of the Bible is, well, ritual and sermon, no, it's, it's faith, is how it's teaching you how to live. Trust this God that there is no one that is like, and because, <laughs> because there is no one like this God, well, that's why. We we do what it says in probably the, well, not probably, what Jesus says, hey, this is the greatest commandment in the law. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That sounds a lot like delight in the law of the Lord. And hey, happy Father's Day, verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. God is so good, therefore love him with everything you've got, delight in his word and pass it on to others, right? All because of, who God is. So delight in the law of the Lord because it shows you who God is. It points you toward the Savior. It teaches you how to live. Therefore, crave it. Delight in it, say, in a world that is full of nonsense. This is what I need more than anything else. And that should lead you then to what it says in Psalm 1, 2. And on his law, he meditates. He meditates day and night. I'm always finding a way to work the word of God into my mind. And even that meditation has the idea of I'm constantly chewing on the word of God. Picture the cow as it chews the cud, right? It grazes, but then it chews, right? That's what your brain should be doing with the God, God's word. We graze as we read God's word, but then... I'm chewing on it. I'm always chewing on the instruction of of God. And again, one very practical way I would encourage you to do that is don't just read the Bible. Even when you spend time, hopefully, you spend time every day reading or studying the Bible, don't just do that. Before you even end that time, chew on what you've read, chew on what you've studied. Ask yourself questions like what did this show me about God? How did this point me toward the Savior? And what did this teach me about how I should live today? There will, if you're reading the Bible, there will always be answers to those questions. Chew on that and don't leave God's word until you have chewed on that. One quote you maybe heard me reference before is from a Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson, who said, the reason we often come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation." Don't just read and forget and move on, read and meditate and live a different life. Because of what you've seen about God, what you've seen about the Savior and what you've been taught to know, taught to feel, taught to do. That's, That's what we want, the word in our mind. And that'll lead to other practical things. I mean, obviously, like I've said, I wanna read it. I wanna study it and I'll sacrifice time for other things to do that. I mean, one way that helps you meditate and chew on God's word is memorizing God's word. I mean, even just the act of going through the mental strain of memorizing forces you to chew on the words, to think about what it means. And then once you have it memorized, you can continue to think about it, even though now you pretty much always have the word of God with you, because most of you have it right here in your pocket whenever you want, right? But we can memorize it. We can Think about it. This is one of the reasons even why we sing as a church. Did you know that? We sing as a church so that you can meditate on the instruction of God. That's why we put these words that should reflect the truth of God's word to melodies. Because the odds are you will probably be more likely to remember some of the lyrics you sang this morning than any of the phrases I have spoken to you. That's one of the reasons why as worship leaders, our first priority is, hey, what is this song saying? And is it worth singing? Is it worth people memorizing and humming and thinking about through the week? Because this week you might go through a trial and it'll be helpful for you to remember in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. That's the law of the Lord. That's the instruction of God. It'd be helpful in that moment for you to remember, hey, you've been faithful through every storm. You will be faithful forevermore. You have done great things, right? You need to remember that. That's the instruction of God. That's why Colossians 13 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That sounds like delighting in it, meditating on it, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, because these songs that we sing help us to delight in the law of the Lord, to meditate on God's word. And maybe even listen to some of these songs. And that's when you're like, yeah, but they're not really my jam. Okay, some of them aren't my jam anyways, but they're full of the law of the Lord and they will help us. And so some of you are like, well, they're not hip enough for me. And some of you are like, well, they're too hip for me. And that's the difficulty of doing worship ministry right there. Encourage your worship leaders. They cannot please everyone but delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on it day and night. Realize there is nothing in this world that you can delight in that is more life-giving than the word of God. And that's where we've all got multiple things that we delight in. We all have many things competing for our attention. And I'd like you to even as you're reminded of how good the word of God is to even step back and say, what are the things I'm delighting in? What are the things that I'm giving my attention to? And because the word of God is is the most life-giving thing, how can I give more of my attention to that? And obviously that means, well, hey, the, the influences that are just straight up pulling us towards the world, yeah, I need those out of my life. But there's probably some things that you delight in that aren't bad. They might even be good, helpful, relaxing, interesting right? And it's not, hey, get, get those things out of your life. But maybe it's, hey, are some of those things kind of taking up too much of the, the memory in the, of my hard drive here? It's being used up by some of these other things when they, they might be good, they might be refreshing, but they're not as life-giving as the word of God. But what are those things for you? What are the distractions that, that might be good, but not as good as God's word? And this is one of the easiest points in all of preaching for you to say, yeah, I know somebody else that's real distracted. Don't think about them. I'm talking to you this morning. It's one of the easiest human things. Like the things I'm distracted by are good things. The the, the things that other people are distracted by are a waste of time, right? Knock that off. What about you is what I'm saying. What are some of the things that's like, yeah, that's good, but I find in my, my spare time or when my mind is free, I keep wandering to these things, which isn't always bad. There's a time and a place for that, but man, my life would be even better if I could give more of that attention to the law of the Lord and delight in the law of the Lord. Because it's showing me there are two ways to live, only two, and one of them is vastly superior. There is a better way. And it's better in the way, but it shows us then the superiority of the destinations. Where does the passage, or where does the path lead to? And we spent most of our time on verses one and two because that's showing us the path Now, more briefly, I wanna spend the rest of our time considering the destinations because verses three and four is gonna show us, hey, here's the short-term results of this road. And then verses five and six are gonna show us, well, here's the long-term outlook. If you really believe this and if you really live this way and hint, hint, they're really good. Short-term, long-term, it's looking up if this is the path that you are on. So point number two, anticipate the positive outcomes of the better way. Anticipate the positive outcomes of the better way. The short term, and then we will see long term. Start with the short term in verses three and four. This blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now this should be very important. Easy for everyone that lives in the Treasure Valley to come up with a mental picture for, right? Because we have this place called the Green Belt. Why is it called the Green Belt? Because there are so many of what there? Trees. You did a lot better than the nine o'clock service, by the way. Um, Last week, I chastised you. This week, I want to affirm you, right? There's so many trees. There's so many trees there. Why? Because there's the water there. There's the river there. They're planted by the water. It's more likely that they will flourish there because they're not out in the desert. They're not in some barren wasteland. They are planted by the streams. Imagine those trees, but it goes on. These trees are actually better than any of the trees you know because these trees, they yield their fruit in its season and their leaf doesn't wither. You, you go down to the green belt during January, it's not gonna be as green as it is right now. But this kind of tree is unique because it bears fruit in its season, and it's always green. That's the kind of person that this blessed man will be. In all that he does, he prospers. Everything he does is blessed. And now again, some people take that and twist that to say, hey, delight in God's law, and you'll be rich beyond your wildest dreams. And You'll be healthy and everything will just go well with you. No, that's not what the Bible says. It's saying there's a kind of prosperity even in suffering. Even when you are poor, even when you are sick, you will prosper. One book I would highly recommend you getting this recommended on the back is The Treasury of David. And even in particular, this might be a good book because it's generally very big and expensive if you get a hard copy. You can get some great uh, digital copies of this book for very, very cheap. They're almost giving it away online. It's Charles Spurgeon's commentaries on the Psalms. And he says this about this prosperity. It is not outward prosperity, which the Christian most desires and values. It is soul prosperity, which he longs for. And hopefully you guys are mature enough to see there are a lot of people out there that are prospering outwardly, that are suffering inwardly. And which would you rather have? And he says, but the man who delights in God's word being taught by it, bringeth forth patience in the time of suffering, faith in the day of trial and holy joy in the hour of prosperity. That's the blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord. But verse four, the wicked, again, getting back to that very binary, the righteous versus the wicked, the wicked are not so. But are like the chaff, which the wind drives away. As they would take their weed and their crops to the threshing floor in ancient Israel and they would toss them, <coughs> they would toss, excuse me, <coughs> they would toss them up into the air, right? So that the, the kernels, the, the heavy parts that were useful, uh, they would come back down, but the chaff would get blown away by the wind, right? Yeah, because that part's worthless. That part you, you don't need that. Let that get blown away away, right? That's what the wicked are like. Or again, maybe a more Treasure Valley example for you on those windy days in the Treasure Valley when you see that tumbleweed blowing across the road. Next time you see one, think to yourself, that's what the wicked are like. (laughs) Pointless, aimless, good for nothing, blown around wherever the wind blows them, right? That's what the wicked are like. That's not what you want to be like. I want to be like the trees down by the greenbelt and even better, evergreen and bearing fruit. That's the results in the short term. And I want to give you one, briefly, one biblical example that might help you see this. As you read the Psalms, one thing I hope that you'll see, even as we look, Psalms has a very royal tone. In some Psalms, that's very obvious, but it should be seen throughout the whole book because most of them are written by David, who was what? The king. King David wrote most of the Psalms. And even in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it speaks of the duty of the king. It says someday you're gonna want a king. And when you get a king, this is what he needs to do. He needs to take the law. And for himself, he needs to write his own copy of the law. And he needs to study it. So he can know to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Well, let's think through the first two kings that they get, King Saul and King David. And if you've been reading through the Bible with us, this should be pretty fresh because we've just been reading about this. And if you haven't, or you're new to church, you might have heard those names before, but King Saul versus King David. One was like a tree planted by the water and one was like the chaff that the wind drives away. Why was that? Well, let's just think of a few differences. One was repentant and the other was not. One of those kings was repentant, and the other was not. King Saul, he sins. He doesn't do what God commands him to do. And a prophet comes and says, hey, why didn't you do what God told you to do? And King Saul, he makes excuses. He downplays, he obfuscates, right? He says, well, I did do what God told me to do. And then Samuel says, well, then what's, what's all the sheep that I hear that you were supposed to kill? Oh, that the, the people made me do it, Samuel. And and by the way, they had this really good idea that we could use them for sacrifices. That's good, right? Samuel says, no, you didn't obey God. David, he sins. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband killed. The prophet comes to David and says, David, you've sinned. And David says, you're right. I have sinned and I need to repent, right? That's what David does when he fails. King Saul was not repentant. King David was. And even that affected their lives. One of these men was confident and the other was not. King Saul, even though it says he was a head taller than anybody else in the kingdom, right? He was this physically strong, tall, powerful man. He was dominated by fear, right? The the other big thing that Saul did that he wasn't supposed to do was he offered the sacrifice when he was supposed to wait for Samuel. Why did he do that? Because he panicked. Ah, oh, 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 the people are fleeing. Uh, Samuel's not here. The Philistines are coming. Ah, get it. Where's the sacrifice? That'll get people going, right? He panicked and disobeyed. King David, on the other hand, when the Philistines are coming, says, "Hey, bring the ephod. Let's seek the Lord. Let's see what God is going to tell us to do." And because of that kind of confidence, he says things like Psalm 27: "The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?" He lived a life of confidence. And finally, one of those kings was effective and the other was not. The kingdom suffered during the time of King Saul. The Philistines won a lot of victories in that season. King David expanded the kingdom to the greatest it's ever been. And, and that's where, no, don't veer off into this false prosperity theology, but there is a sense in hate. Doing what God says will lead to a lot of positive outcomes in life. Again, exhibit A, look at the diligent man versus the sluggard in Proverbs. That's wisdom, foolishness, righteousness, wickedness. They're gonna lead to two different lives, right? The diligent man will be well supplied and the fool will suffer in this life for his foolish, lazy attitude, right? One will be effective and one will not. Again, which kind of life do you want To live, do you want to be the tree or do you want to be the tumbleweed? The difference will be do you listen to God's word or do you follow the ways of the world? And then finally, you get to the long term outlook verses five and six. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now, I would suggest to you that really these ideas are getting us to think towards the end. This isn't really talking about just something that happens in this life. It's looking to the end. I mean, you get that sense, the judgment. We're talking about what happens after you die. We're talking about what happens at the end of all things. And the wicked will not stand. They're not gonna make it through judgment or it could even be translated, they will not rise in the judgment, which may make you think, well, the dead in Christ will rise First, there is a resurrection that you will know if your faith is in Christ that the, the, the wicked will not know. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And I think the sense there is the heavenly congregation. The, the, the sinners aren't gonna be there. And that's where if you're thinking, well, well, I'm a sinner, right? Well, that's why we need the righteousness of Christ. You are declared righteous because of what he has done. Only those that are righteous in Jesus Christ will make it to the heavenly congregation, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In the end, the way of the righteous will be vindicated, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that should encourage us as we think through that long term. Let's look at one more passage this morning, kind of as we wrap up here, that gives us this same sense. Go to Matthew chapter seven with me. Matthew chapter seven. And we're going to see a time where Jesus speaks in a very similar way to Psalm 1. There's two ways, only two ways, and they lead to two different destinations. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And now one thing we've talked about, we've talked a lot about the end. Hey, where do you want to end up? And that's an easy choice. Would you like destruction or life? Uh, life, please. I'll take easy decisions for 200, right? That's an easy choice. The problem is, is well, it depends on what road you choose right now. And what's hard is one of those roads is it's hard and it's not very popular. And the other road is, is wide and it's easy and there's a lot of people there. But the problem is it's that road that leads to destruction and it's the hard road that leads to life. And if you are the kind of person who delights in the law of the Lord, you're gonna experience some of that hardship. You might be experiencing some of that hardship right now. If you are seeking to do what God says, there's going to be times where that's very difficult. There's going to be times where that's very lonely because you feel like, Elijah, I'm the only one trying to do what's right. Where's everybody else? But it's a reminder, no, it leads to life. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It will be vindicated, even though the world will make you feel more lonely by viewing you as some kind of outcast, telling you that you're on the wrong side of history. That's hard, but I know that's not true because history ends with Jesus Christ riding in on a white horse. And on that day, the people who followed him will be vindicated. And so even though right now it's hard, even though right now it's lonely sometimes, I know how it ends. And that's what's gonna keep me going. And I hope that encourages all of you here today. Even as the culture gets more and more hostile, hey, I know where this road ends. And it's going to be worth it. And finally, those of you that you're not sure which road you're on. You're not sure what to make of Christianity. You're, or maybe you even know, I know I'm, I'm on the wrong road, but it's, it's easy. And I kind of like it. Well, I would encourage you to, again, think about you on your deathbed. What will you look back and want to see? And even more than that, what will happen after your deathbed? Where will that lead? Which road you're on right now will determine that destination. And if you're hearing me and you know, I am on the wrong road. Remember, one of those main things the Bible points us to is a savior. Because if you know I'm on the wrong road and your solution is all right, I'll I'll do better, I'll try harder this week to get on that right road, good luck with that. It's not gonna work out with you. You need a new heart. You need a savior to rescue you from that wrong road and put you on the right road, to plant your feet on the rock, to give you the strength to live that different kind of life. If you know you're on the wrong road, the solution today is to turn from it, but to put your faith in the savior, Jesus Christ, the king, who died on the cross so you could be forgiven, so that you could be rescued from a worthless way of life. And he rose again to give you power to live differently. And if you're not sure which road you're on, or if you know you're on the wrong road, but you need to make it right, talk to somebody. I'll be right up here in the front after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that this morning. But there's, the road you're on will lead to these two very different destinations. Which road are you on this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is a blessing to be able to look at a very, very unknown and always, but even it feels like sometimes now more than ever uncertain future and to say, I know whatever happens, I will prosper. And even in death, God, you know the way I will rise in the day of judgment because of the instruction of your word, because I've listened to how your word shows me who you are. I've listened to your word, how it points me to the savior I so desperately need. And I've listened to your word as it points me to to life. God, there is a confidence to be gleaned from this passage. And I thank you for that. And I pray that every one of your people here at this church would know that confidence. God, and I pray first to, to even to gain that confidence, that we would really know that delight in your word. God, that we wouldn't settle just for thinking we delight in the word just kind of through association because my church teaches the Bible and I go there regularly. Pray that every man, every woman, even every child at our church, all of our students would truly delight in your law. That, that your word isn't something we interact with once or twice a week, but we meditate on it day and night because we delight it, we crave it, we need it. God, that, that is what we want Lord. And so we lift that up to you. And I do want to pray here for those that are on the wrong road. God, I pray that you would turn them around this morning, that you would convict their hearts, and that more than that, you would show them the beauty of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And so we lift that up to you, God. We ask that you would change lives through your word this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us so much this morning. Have a happy Father's Day, Maranatha.